So apparently, I must have stolen the feels like guy example from my wife, is what she's telling me. Oh, really? That was her joke. And she even went further. She was like, you know, the feels like guy has to be a guy. Because if it was a woman, the spread would be much larger, (laughs) according to her. I didn't say this. Please send all angry letters to read. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, healthcare systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information and have fun along the way. And now, here are your hosts, Reed Smith and Chris Boyer. Welcome to episode 105 of Touchpoint. I am Reed Smith. On the other side of the microphone is Chris Boyer. How's it going? Pretty good, Reed. We're on the other side of the polar vortex now. We, uh, I actually uh, weathered through minus 50 degrees temperatures the last couple of days. Of course, that feels like temperature. It's 60 here right now. <laughs> like literally 60 degrees. Now, we it was supposed to get down to 18 at one point, which is... It's like negative 50, you know, for down here. Because no one has any the appropriate clothing, you know, or anything like that. It's like Austin's polar vortex. Yeah, exactly. But I, I don't think it got down below freezing. The question is, if it got down to 18 degrees, would Austin set the train tracks on fire like they did in Chicago? I mean, if we did, it was just a prank. I don't think it was meant <laughs> to have happened. <laughs> cool uh, topic today and a good interview coming up. But this is something that I think all of us deal with, which is this idea that participation online, what value, what benefit does that have to the organization and how can you use that to build allegiances, if you will, or have people, you know, have some sort of relationship with you. And that that happens typically through trust building. I'm excited to get into how do we establish trust with our patients and how digital can play a role in that. But before we do, we do know that building trust with patients is complicated But let's face it, healthcare in general is complicated, Reed. One of our sponsors and our friends over there at Loyal get that. That's why they are dedicated to helping health systems simplify the complexities through smart consumer-first technology solutions designed to inspire loyalty. Whatever your business goals, Loyal's conversation and data intelligence platform enables you to connect with your patients and guide them through their digital experience by bringing together the voice of the customer and the voice of the health system. Loyal solutions make healthcare conversations more accessible, insightful, and well, just simple. And you know what's even more simpler? All you have to do is go over to loyalhealth.com slash demo to schedule one of those demos and let them know that the Touchpoint podcast sent you their way. And by the way, if you're going to Hims, here's another simple thing you can do. Just be sure to stop by the Loyal booth. That's booth number 4573 to say hello and check out some of their new product features. Whichever way you see them, whichever way you work with them, whichever way you start to build the trust with Loyal, be sure to let them know that Touchpoint podcast sent you. All right. So building trust within the organization, uh, we're going to talk uh, through a couple of articles and then talk about digital's role in this ecosystem. I think it's established fact now, isn't it? That trust is an integral part of brand and brand identity. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, it has to be. Because again, you know, branding or the brand is the experience you have with with the company, with the organization, with the product. You know, it's not just brand, i.e. the logo or colors or something like that. The experience you have, hopefully, is one where that is building trust or, or it is or isn't, I guess. And so there's some level of loyalty based on that. I think it's inherent within any kind of good brand allegiance that one may have. And I always think about it every year when it's, you know, Apple season or iPhone season and all the Apple fanatics, they get out there and they get in line to buy the new iPhone, you know, or whatever it might be. But the reason why I think they do that is it may not have that advanced level of features, but they just have that sort of that trust that that new device, that new technology or whatever is coming from Apple is going to inspire that excitement that they look for. And and that, in, in essence, is trust in the brand. It is. And there's a brand promise there. The promise is, you know, and it's, it's pretty apparent, like, you know what you're going to get before you get it. 
you know, they deliver on that brand promise, which again, builds on that trust. I found an article on CMO.com. I always love going to CMO.com as an aside. They have just such really interesting articles and some of them are really dead on. And should have bought that URL. That'd have been a good URL to own. The article I found is why consumer trust is more vital to brand survival than it's ever been. And it talks about the fact that consumer trust is not only vital in an environment where customer expectations are increasing, which we know they are, but also the fact that competition is becoming more and more fierce. And in this day and age where there's a lot of competition and consumers are becoming more and more persnickety, trust with your brand is one of those differentiators that could make or break an organization. It does. I mean, you know, I mentioned brand promise a minute ago. It's pretty easy these days because of competition, because of the online environment uh, and the engagement of brands online and in consumers online to figure out pretty quickly if people are keeping the brand promise or not. Like, oh, that's a really cool product. And you're on Amazon, you go, oh, actually, you know what? That one's only got like one, one and a half stars on average. And there's a whole bunch of reviews. So you know, that's really all I need to see. Let, let me see what the other brands that make this product, you know, what, what they have, you know, you, you can figure out pretty quickly what that looks like, what that trust looks like. You know, another place that people turn to a lot to, to try to establish that trust is social media. And I think we've, we've been talking about this for years where social media is a platform where you can really reinforce the trust that people have with your organization just by merely using the tools in an honest and forthright way. We talk about transparency. We talk about being able to respond to reviews. There's a lot of things that these new digital tools can provide us to help establish that trust. And really what it's allowed people to do is find that advocacy or that word of mouth or that endorsement. Because again, we've talked about this historically, if you had to have something done, especially from an elective standpoint, joint replacement's a good example, you know, you're going to ask around or maybe have a family member who has had their knee replaced or hip replaced or what have you. Who'd you go to? How did it go? The next step would be to ask friends of friends. It's like, well, I don't have anybody in one degree of separation that's had a knee replaced, but you know what? This person at work, their father-in-law did or something, right? You got this kind of this couple of layers removed. So you get the friend of a friend. Well, where did they go? Oh, I don't know. I'll ask. And so you do that whole scenario. And short of that, now what you're left with, and even as somebody is, and a lot of times is the first option is that online environment, you know, so they're going to message boards, groups, Facebook groups or pages, online reviews, obviously. And some of that is a reinforcement of the word of mouth endorsement. So, oh, you need to go see this guy. Well, you're probably still going to look online and see if it matches up with that's where everybody goes, should I? I think we'd be remiss to not mention the fact that influencer marketing is also a big conveyor of trust. Yes. And I say that with a little bit of anxiety because I just recently watched that documentary on Netflix about the fire Festival. Oh, I did too. There's a significant backlash against some of the influencers that Mm -hmm. were used to promote that festival, and it actually eroded the trust. And I guess that maybe it is a a telling story that if you engage in influencer marketing, which is a great way to build trust, it's also a really great way to erode trust and destroy trust with a brand based on how you're actually using it. It is pretty wild because uh, like anything, influencer advocacy-based efforts are great in their purest form. But then that's a good example, that fire festival of, you know, how that goes bad. And, you know, people are doing things for money only. I mean, I guess that's always happened in advertising to some degree. It's like, does OJ Simpson really rent from Hertz? You know, (laughs) kind of a, you know, whatever, pick whatever example you want. Right. You know, does LeBron James really drive a Kia? Like, I mean, do we really think he's, is that what he's taken to the arena, uh, you know, in LA? Probably not. Does he have one? Sure. (laughs) Whatever. But Right. So I guess it's always happened, but this just seems more personal. It certainly does. And I mean, the the fact of the matter is for any kind of marketer nowadays, there are so many different channels and ways that you can actually connect with audiences that as you're establishing trust with your brand, you have to be really mindful of the fact that you're using every channel in a way that's 
succinct and way that can exemplify that brand, regardless of what it is, right? If you are going to go after celebrity endorsements for your product, you want to do it in an honest and forthright way. You don't want to kind of be shady or shifty and pay people on the sly to blog about your services. If you're going to use social media, you want to try to be as transparent as possible. Whatever channel it may be that you're using as a marketer today, you have to be consistent with how you use those channels to convey that trust. And just realistically, the users or consumers know what to expect from you across those channels. And so it may not be quite as explicit as the, as the trust piece. Are they genuine? Are they delivering on this? But, but realistically, it's like if I go here, I can expect this kind of stuff. So if all of a sudden something out of the norm falls in there, they're much, you know, users are much less likely to trust or kind of validate that. And it could happen in insignificant ways that could really overtake everything. Like, again, back to the fire Festival, I think the tipping point was when that one person that had 800 followers tweeted out a photo at the fire Festival of the cheese sandwich and said, this is the right. gourmet food, right. Right? right? And that's what certainly started the whole social media backlash against the Fire Festival and really made it made everybody turn on the actual brand itself. Yeah, and you see this, and, and I'm, not, I'm not by any means trying to make some sort of a political statement or stance, but you see this on both sides where you'll read an article and they quote, you know, they pull in tweets from people on the opposite side or bashing something or doing something. And you click through and look and it's like, this guy has 11 followers. This person doesn't even have a profile image. This per-, you know, And they're in like these major publications is like authorities, right? right. And so immediately I'm like, okay, well, I now, you know, whatever this, this journalistic, you know, newspaper, online site, TV station, whatever it is, has now gone down a notch in my mind because they're out here quoting people that, aren't credible at all. You know, I mean, maybe they have a good point, but like they're, they're they're just picking random stuff because they can, you know, they're just cherry picking. That certainly is true. That's a really good point. Whether they're or not, they're cherry picking. I mean, it, it really speaks to the fact like you yourself said, right. That you start to lose trust in that news organization. If they're doing that trust is critical and important. And I think marketers, we've been talking about trust as being important since the advent of marketing. I think everyone knows that that's there. We refer to it in more of a sort of a sociological aspect, like saying that this is important and we kind of provide social examples. But uh, there's this other article I found read on the American Marketing Association's website that actually shows that there is chemical neurological association of trust and loyalty associated with brands tryptophan oh wait no that's (laughs) something else it's gone past social science right i mean they're actually doing studies now neurological studies about the impact that good positive brands have on your brain and how it does release good endorphins in your brain. And I thought it would be interesting, Reed, if we could, I would request that maybe you can read to our audience some of the clinical aspects of what they're doing here. Okay. I'm going to just read verbatim from this article. And so I'm I'm picking up somewhat in the middle of a sentence, uh, in the middle of a paragraph, if you will. But it says, uh, Zach and team discovered through blood sampling that the neurochemical oxytocin or OT is synthesized in the human brain when one is trusted or simply treated well. The OT molecule in turn motivates reciprocation. The release of OT signals that the other party is safe to be around and that cooperative behavior will not be exploited. Similar to lab rodents, the synthesis of OT motivates people to treat the other party like family. Functional MRIs have shown that infusing people with OT reduces fear-associated brain activity. OT appears to be the neurochemical that emotionally connects us to others by enhancing empathy, which is why it sometimes is called the love hormone. I don't know what I just read. (laughs) Well, (laughs) no, I'm, I'm kidding. I think it's fascinating. The love hormone is released when you feel the trust with with a thing or a brand or something. I also think it's fascinating that in the middle of it, 
they said that uh, OT motivates people to treat the other party like family. Isn't that Olive Garden? I feel like a lot of brands talk about treating you like family, which may or may not be good depending on (laughs) your background. But anyway. Hey, we want to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors, and that's our good friends at Binary Fountain. You know, as a healthcare marketer, it's probably pretty obvious these days how much time you're spending uh, on reviews, ratings relative to hospitals, physicians, all that kind of good stuff. You know, too many of those are going unanswered, and they're certainly not being analyzed. This could be costing us new and current customers. It could be impacting our patient experience scores and potentially impacting our revenue. Luckily, our good friends at Binary Fountain have an online reputation management platform called Binary Health Analytics. If you'd like to learn more or even schedule a demo, visit them online at binaryfountain.com. That's binaryfountain.com. You've always heard, you know, even with just dealing with like anybody that's that's worked in uh, a decent sized organizations, most of the folks listening here probably work in hospitals, for example, uh, either they're being managed or they are managers uh, of some sort and have people they deal with. If you take some of those classes and courses around management and things, there's like this ratio uh, and I've heard a couple of different three to one, five to one, you know, that type thing. But basically, you know, one positive comment to one negative comment, that's a negative relationship. Like that's how that's viewed by that, that person receiving the comments, right? Three to one, I believe is neutral. So three positive comments to every negative comment to the uh, subordinate, if you will, that's neutral. And five to one is seen as positive. So, I mean, that's an interesting way to think about that, of just the power of that negativity that's in there. That negativity does carry a heavier weight than positivity. And when you're thinking about starting to have your employees be instilled as brand ambassadors for your organization, you have to really think about that because if they are, you know, operating in a, in a place where you, you are concerned about performance, where there is comments about, you know, standards of behavior and performance, et cetera, that could really weigh in heavily on how they're going to react to being asked to be a brand ambassador. It really does. And I think on the flip side of that, from a consumerism standpoint, and this is something that's always been interesting to me, is that person that has the most vitriol or negative outlook or experience even towards the brand or organization is almost the ones that are the easiest to flip around and become the biggest ambassadors from a consumer standpoint. You know what I'm saying? Haven't you seen that? It's their personality. It's like they're all in. And so whatever the viewpoint is, they're just all in. They're just seeking out attention and and they're generating negative attention to possibly seek a positive interaction with the brand or with your organization. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Could be. You know, those are those people that are kind of in the middle. It's like everything was fine. A couple of good things happen. A couple of not so good things happen. Like there's not a huge swing there. You can fix a few things and they're like, oh, hey, thanks. Appreciate that. But the person that had the terrible experience that if you make that right, all of a sudden now they're just like your biggest advocate. It's a weird pendulum. I can't I can't quite put my finger on why that is the way it is. Maybe we should take them into a lab and see if they have some kind of chemical or something that's triggering in their brain. <laughs> yeah. I think that hospitals and health systems are seen as more mission-driven. They're there for good, and they're actually there to serve good purposes. And so maybe people interacting with our, our organizations are easier to bring in under the fold because they want to trust us. Yeah, I mean, you do, right? I mean, you. this is a very personal relationship uh, in most, if not all cases. Uh, you know, your health, you want to trust. Yeah, absolutely. That's not only us kind of maybe speculating about, there was some studies that were done about trust in industries in general, but they specifically targeted trust in the healthcare industry, the Edelman Trust Barometer. And what they found is that in the U.S., trust in the healthcare industry declined by nine percentage points in just one year, declining from 62% of people trusting, that's roughly two-thirds of Americans, down to 53%, close to only one half of the population trusting in the healthcare industry in general. But here's the upside of that. Here's the uptick of it. The positive key finding here is that U.S. consumers rank hospitals, a segment of the healthcare industry, 
hospitals as the top trusted segment in the U.S. across all industries, trusted by 70% of the general public. And that's been relatively flat level year over year. Part of it is probably built in the fact that we as, as hospitals, we're doing things that are actually designed to help improve our community, that we're trying to, trying to provide great care and, and help our community in, in the basics of what we do. But there's other additive factors about us as hospitals and health systems. We typically tend to be large employers in the community. Mm-hmm. People True. that are in a community are like, well, we want to believe in this hospital. We want this hospital to be successful because maybe we have family members that actually work there. Sure. I mean, no, no one wants the healthcare system to be untrusting. I mean, I know we hear about that a lot in the news, especially from a billing or payer or insurance or the government run programs, Medicare, Medicaid, things like that seem to be, you know, targets, obviously. Or like pharma, and you know, pharma is a big one that's, that everybody kind of ostracizes, right, in the healthcare segment. But if you think about pulling out the subsegment of just hospitals and health systems, that is like in a whole different class in and above itself. To me, that's kind of interesting. And it reminds me of something when I first got into the space, my first uh, chief marketing officers I worked for uh, as a good friend of ours, I'll do a shout out to him, Jeff Cowart. We, we all know oh, Jeff. Yeah, Jeff. Jeff came from a political uh, background and he was a chief marketing officer at a hospital. And he would always say to me that we as hospitals, we're not in the business of selling as marketers. We're not selling our products. We're not selling our, you know, our knee surgery or our weight loss surgery or whatever. We're also not selling our doctors and people have an inherent trust within their physicians and the specialists and all the, you know, the experts that are out there. He says at the core of what we're doing is we're engendering trust to our community. And that's sort of the foundation of everything that we do from a marketing perspective. He said that's the cornerstone of a good marketing effort in a hospital or health system. It's an interesting place to be because, you know, we want to trust everybody. But yet my gut reaction is it's like, okay, well, it's because... Hospitals and people on you know on the provider side at least let's let's say that people that provide clinical or health services they mean well mission driven you know whatever however you want to frame that but then again it's like I, I think back to my southern roots of like always like well you know she meant well you know it's like you didn't trust any <laughs> of those people you know the the, the meant well scale you know did not was never kind to people. And it's like, can you believe what she, well, she meant well. I don't know why it's a she, but it just seems to, that's the way I remember it. But anyway, <laughs> the point being is like, you know, just because you mean well does not inherently equate to trust. So it's not that. It's it's some sort of outcome-based decision. Yeah, I suppose that, you know, if a hospital or health system, heaven forbid, did not do well, even though they meant well, you know, i.e. they put patients at risk or, you know, heaven forbid, even worse, that probably the trust in that institution will, would erode over time. We've seen them take hits, right? You always, you've got the nurse, right? Or, or some somebody in a clinical role that is harming patients, for example. You know, I can think of a couple of examples over the years where that that's happened. Well, I would assume, I, I don't know, because I wasn't involved in any of those cases uh, directly, but I would assume, especially this day and age, it's, it's going to be really hard to protect that trust online when things like that happen. That is so true. Again, the guy who tweeted out the picture of the cheese sandwich at the fire festival, that can happen in a hospital, <laughs> right. right? At, at, at right. any given point in time, it can instantly erode at that trust. And that makes it very, very difficult. But digital is critical then, having a good digital approach that's critical to supporting the trust building that you do. And it's it's an ongoing thing. At least that's what I found. The digital side of the equation is what really leads the way around a lot of these transparency initiatives. That's what we're seeing, right? It's the putting the scores online. It's the you know publishing quality metrics. That is true. I mean, we've been doing a press Ganey or NRC surveys for years and years and years. It's only when we can enable it online that suddenly it became a data point that consumers are 
interested in. The whole thing around websites like CMS putting quality scores on their websites, digital really has driven the way around transparency and in effect has dramatically influenced the way trust is handled by uh, healthcare marketers, by healthcare, uh, healthcare branders, really. It's not just websites and social media and reviews and things like that. It's becoming even much more than that, like the digital technologies and the touch points, the more Fitbits that we have that are connected to our electronic medical records. What we're moving forward in, in terms of embracing digital and digital health and digital population health management and all of these other things that we, we've been talking about really before, these things really are asking a lot of the patient of the people in our community and really putting stress on the trust that they have with us as an organization. Yeah, I don't think we quite, you know, realize the price we're paying around trust either. Downloading and using apps, for example. Uh, I mean, I was listening to a podcast earlier that I enjoy. It's called Reply All. It's a show about the internet. And uh, anyway, they, they were talking about all these robocalls and how we've seen a spike in those over the last six months and why that is. And, and they realized that these data brokers are actually selling information from the cellular carriers that allow these robocall folks that are, that are sending to be able to pinpoint where you are. And so they can evolve the, the phone number it's coming from based on you traveling around the country. It's hard to believe that it's like, well, how did they get that? It's like, well, have you ever downloaded an app where it asked for your phone number because it needed to text you, you know, a confirmation code or something? Well, you just explicitly gave permission for them to then give that to, you know, that your phone number to anybody. There's another article that talks about, and we'll link to it in the show notes, but it's called Building Trust in the Digital Economy. And it says that the combination of big data generated by wearable technology, genome sequencing and medical records analyzed by AI could revolutionize healthcare and the way we deliver healthcare. But how much privacy do we have to give up to achieve this end? And how much can we trust those companies not to abuse that data? Who is it that sold all the information? Was it 23andMe? You know, that's a good example. It's like, look, I, you know, honestly, I don't know where I come down on that. I haven't participated in any 23andMe-related you know, thanks, but you ancestry, you know, everybody's just like giving their DNA to ancestry, you know, cause it's neat to build a family tree, you know, online or whatever, or, or to find out that stuff you already knew. Oh, I'm European, <laughs> you know, I'm from European descent with a little bit of a uh, little percentage of like from Switzerland or something, you know, like, <laughs> I, okay, yeah. super, you know, or Ireland or whatever, but to what end? Like that's a lot of information that they're gathering. I think that maybe we can end it with a positive note and, and actually reference an, another article that I found that is called Eight Ways to Build Brand Trust Online. Some of them are like, yep, yeah, makes total sense. Some of them are like, well, it's kind of close. So we, we may kind of riff off of this a little bit. What's the first one? Provide valuable content. Yeah, that obviously makes sense. I mean, you're going to continue to go back to places you find value. So there's certain YouTube channels. I mean, I'm a DIYer and a hobbyist around you know, woodworking and some leather and stuff like that. Well, there's certain craftsmen online that have some really fascinating, no one else would find it fascinating, but you know, on how to use a lathe or um, you know, particular tool, hand tools and things like that. Well, they provide really great content that I can go back to and watch and go, okay, so you know, that's how you sharpen a hand plane or whatever. You know, I mean, they, they create good information and good content that, that keeps me coming back. Yeah, in this case, valuable content means content that's not really a sales pitch, right? It's content that actually gives value to, in this case, right, the lathe that you purchase to really show the value of you using that. And it's, it makes that relationship that you have with that brand and that that product or that service that much more meaningful. Some ones that are maybe less, uh, some examples that are maybe less specific to a product is like, if you think about Dove, they, they gave an example here in this article about the, the Dove's real beauty sketches. Mm. They don't even talk about their product. They talk about the perception of women seeing beauty in themselves. That's like taking trust to a whole nother level. 
It's a little deeper than I go online, I think. <laughs> I'm just looking for like the appropriate way to you know, sharpen a chisel. Another one is uh, engaging customers in two-way communications. Social media is a great place for that, where you can have Twitter conversations. But really, it's just that the way you engage and engage your community and talk to people through these channels where they can talk back to you. Yeah, and a lot of that is... Uh, certainly what you say, right? But it's also how you participate. How responsive are you? How transparent? You know, those types of things. It's not what you say, it's what you do, you know, kind of a thing. You always hear that growing up. It's like, look, I don't, I don't care what the kid says, but his attitude tells me this, right? Well, it's kind of the same same scenario, right? And it's the tone and the 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 timber of how you respond, the frequency of your responses, all of those things become a big critical part to building trust. Uh, the next one they have on here is uh, specifically to host live video events. Uh, that could just be live events, you know, or, or s- some way that, that users feel like they're actually connecting with you. They're not just consuming your content. They're actually, you know, connecting you know, in the olden days, it was we hold a live press release, right, or a live press announcement or what have you, but you're only talking to a group of reporters that have been asked to that particular room. This is really taking it out and saying, look, we're going to display ourselves real time and have engagements with our community through Facebook Live or whatever it might be. At first, I, when I saw this, I thought, well, that not that just valuable content? But in this case, I think there's something around that, that real time aspect of this video event. Another one they reference here is keeping your brand consistent. And what they're talking about here is that multi-channel consistency. And very clearly what we're not saying here is we're not not saying to say the same thing on every channel. Obviously you want to have a different voice and tone for each channel, but to have consistency in your brand and your tone and your voice across all of these channels that potentially they can interact with and touch point for you. And I mean, a lot of that is just like, if all of a sudden you jumped up and made this big political statement as a brand, right? And everybody goes, uh, okay, that's weird. You know, like it just doesn't fit. Like they've never made a political statement before or had any stance like, that. you know, like all of a sudden it's just like out of left field. And that's what it's talking about. Usually that's followed with the person managing our social media accidentally got, you know, um, uh, <laughs> yeah. tweeted out on their own personal <laughs> yeah. messages yeah. on the corporate account. Hey, anybody running social side note, uh, have two different Twitter apps on your phone, one for the brand and one personally. So like literally <laughs> you have to be in two different apps. All right. Anyway, The next one, encourage user-generated content. So again, you get people engaged. People like to participate and feel like they're a part, you know, kind of back to that live event scenario. But now you're actually talking about user-generated content. And very clearly, back to our FIRE references, right? We want to make sure that those are authentic user-generated content. People today, nowadays, online users can see right through if there's any kind of non-authentic ways that you're getting user-generated content. Making sure that you build your brand so that people do talk about you and they are inspired to talk about you. That's really what they're getting at here. Another one, which I thought was interesting, Reed, I never thought about this, but it's a, it's, it's, it makes sense, is to share trustworthy links. Hmm. I think about that as you build thought leadership strategies that you want to you know, engage and share interesting links from what's happening in your community. But as I think about it for a bigger brand, that makes sense too. You want to share interesting things that might be happening in your community, and you want to make sure that those links are, are to things that are trustworthy. You're transposing, I guess, uh, the trust people have with your brand on whatever it is that you're sharing. So there's some responsibility there, obviously. They also reference the fact that you could get, you know, these branded links that you use when you're tweeting out like the bitlies and things like that. They really focus in on the fact that a lot of people are, are users are starting to be suspicious of these URL shorteners and to maybe invest in those branded links to help make that link more authentic and trustworthy. That makes sense. And plus it's just nice. It looks nice, you know, as well. Encourage user reviews is the next one. Um, so again, hey, we don't have anything to hide. Just transparency play. 
we want to hear from everybody, the good, bad, the ugly, you know, kind of a thing. And if you're an organization that prides itself on doing well, doing the right thing, then, um, you know, that's, that's a great one. Not only encouraging people to review you online, I guess in some organizations, mine included, we, we have a tenuous relationship with trying to get people to say good things about us online. We want them to, but we don't want to explicitly ask them to. But also this leads to the whole fact of, being proactive internally and surfacing out quality data, pulling out the press gainy reviews and putting them up on your website, being proactive about any kind of feedback and data that you have about your organization, sharing that out in a transparent manner. Um, the last one, which is interesting, is says, make sure your brand acts responsibly. And what they mean here is, is you're not only living the trust of your own brand, but they're looking at to see who you're interacting with and making sure that you're being socially responsible and that you're not, you know, tweeting out articles from people that maybe, you know, the chemical plant that maybe just polluted the river in your community. You want to publish good things. You want to start to embrace sort of that positive aspect of what you and your brand does in the community. Social responsibility has become a department, you know, was a person and now a department and, and things like that amongst these big brands. And so I think it'd be interesting to go visit with if you're heading up digital or, you know, in, in this area with your organization to talk to those folks that are doing quote unquote corporate responsibility and see how that kind of plays a role there. These are all great things, and we can go on and on uh, about what you know trust means and how that uh, happens online. One interesting thing, and we'll hear about it in the interview, organizations, especially hospitals, like to partner and do things within the community with other organizations. One of the most common you see is you know some sort of affiliation, if you will, or partnership with a local university or maybe a professional sports team. How do you come alongside those organizations or bring them alongside your brand? And how do you maximize the trust uh, and the equity that both brands have? Hey, Chris, before we go too much further, jump into this next segment of the podcast, I did want to uh, mention and thank uh, one of our sponsors, Influence Health. Uh, you know, they've got a consumer experience platform that, that covers several things. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we've we've talked about content management systems on this podcast. Yeah, we did. What about CRMs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we covered CRMs for sure. And then obviously each and every week we talk about digital marketing. So digital marketing systems, uh, you know, in one way, shape or form have probably been covered, right? That's right. Digital marketing systems. And I would say that we even talk about it in a way of uh, that overall digital consumer experience. Well, there you go. I, you know, I would I would recommend for anybody interested in one of those topics uh, or anything else. They've also got some complimentary solutions on their website. But but head over to their website, take a look at what they've got and what they're offering relative to CMS, CRM, digital marketing systems. Kind of how all that is woven together in what they call their consumer experience platform. Find your way over to influencehealth.com. All right, welcome back to the Ask the Expert portion of the podcast. Today, I am fortunate and uh, excited to have Jeff Safka on. Jeff uh, is the CEO of a company called Bendigo, and I'll let him tell you a little bit more about that. But Jeff, appreciate you being on, uh, taking a few minutes and, uh, and chatting with us today. Thanks so much. Tell me uh, a little bit of your background and kind of how you got into healthcare. It was an odd transition to healthcare. I actually started in consumer products as a buyer in retail and ended up at the National Football League running a, a big chunk of marketing responsibility for the league office. Uh, after that, I kind of moved into a, a range of different positions at Live Nation in marketing and then went to work for Mayor Bloomberg and was actually the deputy chief marketing officer for the city of New York as we were trying to get the Olympics to come to New York City. And so I've had a really non-traditional background as it co comes to healthcare. And uh, I was asked actually just on a lark to help a, a local uh, leading healthcare organization here, Hackensack University Medical Center at the time. Uh, they were going through a, a big change, new CEO, new vision, new plan, and they wanted a new identity, a new brand, and they wanted to be able to create a network. And I was asked to come on board and help build them a 
new full-on uh, identity platform, TV, radio, uh, print, uh, website, the whole thing. And, and that was my kind of plunge into healthcare. I've certainly learned quickly that there's a lot of similarities between the traditional consumer product business uh, and consumer services business and healthcare, which at the time was a little bit of a stretch, but I feel it's definitely come around since then. Bendigo has been around for a while, but how'd you get started and, and where did the where did the name Bendigo come from? So I actually, I'd lived in Australia for a little while and happened to be not far from the city of Bendigo, which is kind of uh, Australia's Los, uh, San Francisco. It's their original mining town. It was the gold strike town. The long story short, it's a fun metaphor, but the Bendigo Mining Company found all of the gold hidden underneath the surface of Bendigo. And we thought that was an apt analogy for a company who helped uh, organizations kind of mine for hidden assets and value and things they already have. And so we called it Bendigo. Plus, it sounded like a pretty cool name at the time as well. As I transitioned out of kind of the full-time a position of leading the marketing group there on a temporary basis. You know, they they had great partnerships with the New York Giants, the New York Red Bulls, the PGA, the Super Bowl was in town. So it was a really exciting time and, and I decided I would like to stay kind of true to my roots and stay in the in the sports business. But suddenly I found myself working with a number of healthcare systems, all of them that were trying to leverage and figure out how they could maximize and optimize their partnerships with these sports teams. Some of it came about because they were going to be negotiating a new agreement and they needed help. And sometimes there were folks who already were spending a ton of money and didn't frankly know if they were getting any return on investment from it. Uh, we kind of struck on something and we decided that we would kind of narrow our focus and you know, solely worry about nothing except helping major healthcare systems kind of optimize, negotiate, and activate their sports partnerships. We work or I work with, with hospitals all around the country and, and obviously uh, community partnerships, and I'll use that as kind of a broad term, is, is obviously something people spend a fair amount of time looking at. Partnering with, sponsoring, promoting, being a partner of a local sports team, predominantly professional sports or maybe a large university. I guess from the outside, I mean, you look at that and you think, well, it would be cool. That seems like a neat idea, but but from a business sense, why why could that be a good idea? What what's the advantage in partnering with some of those organizations that you're that you're seeing? Well, you know, it's funny if you look at the the history of the sports business. It started out with people wanting to get uh, tickets and have signs and for the prestige of having their brands associated with sports. So, you know, there's a lot of CEOs at golf tournaments and, but you know, those days are long gone. These days, the sports industry, which I spend, I feel just as much time as I do in healthcare is a highly sophisticated marketing industry with trillions of dollars being spent on TV, on, on partnership uh, rights, on activations, on, Radio. I mean, it's absolutely pervasive throughout society because, you know, just here in New York alone, I think there's 2 million New York Giant fans that live in New Jersey. It's one of the last places where a large group of people can unite for one event or a cause and have a kind of a, a uniting force in their lives. And with the way that media has changed, it's funny, you see a lot more money being spent by Verizon or Apple or Nike or Visa. They're spending more and more money on sports because it's really hard to reach consumers with kind of traditional advertising as we know it. I mean, these days, people are unplugged from, uh, from cable, they're, uh, they're binge watching uh, Game of Thrones or, or the latest Netflix series. And it's not as easy to reach people. And But sports is out there in the community all the time. And it's the last sort of DVR-proof world that advertisers can find to try to get a message through. You know, it's funny you say that. Yeah, You talk about people, uh, or I've had a lot of conversations here as of late, I feel like, uh, with friends and buddies talking about cutting the cord. That's always the one holdup is sports. You know, any sort of a live event that harkens back to this idea that, you know, a, a fan or a fanatic of a team or organization, a school, you know, whatever, however you want to frame that, they're pretty diehard as it relates uh, to these organizations. How, how does an organization like a hospital or a healthcare provider take advantage of that, that brand equity that these sports organizations have have built over the last you know fifty years. To me, what it means as a fan was that when I was working at the NFL and and I had a a, a shoulder problem, I 
called my friend at the New York Jets and asked him if he would get me to their surgeon because I know that if the New York Jets surgeon was good enough to take care of them, I'd have the best of the best. And that little idea is actually really powerful because people do want to go where the players are being taken care of. And and it's funny, looking at the research, we would ask unaided, you know, who do you think the sponsors are of Team XYZ? Well, you'd get the usual airlines, uh, soda, tires, you know, whatever the, the, the product and services. Once you start asking them aided awareness, who do you think are associated with the teams? Boy, their ears perk up because they know which hospitals take care of the teams. And I think the fans don't think about hospitals as sponsors of teams as much as they think about them being the organizations that take care of them. They're, you know, healthcare is almost endemic to the sport, like, like the, the Wilson football and the, the Rydell helmet and the, the Louisville slugger bat. You can see on college game day, they've got, you know, they're, oh, they're bringing the wide receiver over to the, to the medical tent and he's going into the medical tent to have a look at his knee and they've got the healthcare organization's logo right on the tent. People don't see these healthcare providers as advertisers. They see them as part of the game. And sports has always been very good at welcoming brands into their game to make their games better for the fans. That's where I think you, I heard you say the word trust before. There really is something that we've kind of coined the phrase. It's the transfer of trust. You know, we've got research that has shown us that if I trust the New York Giants and the New York Giants trust Hackensack Meridian Health, I'm going to be maybe 60 something percent more likely to trust and consider that healthcare provider, not just the fans, but even people who are not fans, you know, you move the needle dramatically when people know that your healthcare system, you know, is part of the health of, of that particular team. It's a form of, or I mean, I guess it technically is influencer marketing, right? I mean, we typically think of it in light of like celebrity endorsements or one of the Kardashians posting something on Instagram. We don't think about it, I guess, maybe as much as uh, partnering with one brand to another brand. But what are some of the other things that organizations are doing outside of what we've thought of as, as traditional advertising, I guess. Are, are y'all seeing other types of activations and engagements? Back when we were finishing up the brand identity work for Hackensack University Medical Center, we obviously did our due diligence and brought it to some focus groups. And we had the kind of one-way mirror where we, we were able to kind of observe a group of people talking about the brand and what they liked and what they didn't like. And obviously, the the moderators are very crafty. The way they kind of roll out the questions is to not tip their hands early on what they're really trying to find out. The moderator said, hey, here's a question. Uh, now that you know, you know that we're here to talk about Hackensack Meridian Health, does anybody here know if they're involved with any of the local sports teams? And someone said, oh, yeah. One of the respondents, yeah, they, they uh, do a lot of stuff with the Giants. And the guy goes, well, that's really interesting. Um, what do you think they do? He said, well, they, they obviously must uh, you know, take care of their players in some way. And some other person from the group jumped in and said, well, that's probably not true. They just probably pay them a lot of money. It's a sponsorship. Well, it's funny because then another person said, yeah, it's a sponsorship, but you know what? First of all, if they're spending that much money to be with the Giants, you know they have to be a strong system and they're going to have to have the best equipment and the best doctors. But you know, I could pick five other hospitals around here that would probably give the Giants twice as much money, but the Giants would never go to them if they're one of their players were sick. They're just not at that level of quality hospital. And everyone in the room said, Oh, you know what? That sounds about right. And I thought that was really instructive to talk about that transfer of trust. So they really did believe that uh, the alliance between the healthcare system and the team gave them the confidence that that organization must be you know, on the leading edge, must have the best equipment, must have the best doctors. And yes, they're probably paying for it. So there's probably some commercial transaction, but they would never take the money from somebody who would provide an inferior service. One of the key principles that I think are continuing to guide where we're trying to take our healthcare partners is that the days of, of signs in the outfield and tickets and, you know, a, a radio spot on the air, you know, those days have gone the way of, you know, the CEO sitting in the suite at the, at the golf tournament. These days it's about digital. It's about storytelling. It's about trying to get the players, the coaches, former players to tell their stories about particular experiences that they have had that they think can help keep the community healthy. As healthcare is kind of moving towards population health and, and keeping 
larger populations healthy. You know, we find that for sports, even though you do have that trust factor making that transfer with, let's say, the orthopedic group who happens to be treating the team. You know, the other big part of this is that you know, our hospital systems are trying to develop relationships with people before they get sick. They may be responsible for, you know, for a capitated market or for a particular population or for a, you know, for BMW's corporate headquarters with 10,000 people and that population. So it's important to them that they're reaching out to those folks to make sure they're getting their annual physicals, to make sure that they're getting their, you know, their screenings at the right times in their lives, to make sure that they're eating right and nutrition. So we've really taken up the cause to try to get some of the former players who are in that age group that are more in the heavy user healthcare world. So players who may be in their, you know, 40s, 50s, or 60s now, and they're talking about their personal experiences, whether it's, you know, Phil Sims, he's had a a heck of a battle with skin cancer and has, you know, really done amazing work getting on, uh, getting on camera and having a heart to heart talk with the giant fans about, you know, the, the, the dangers and the challenges around skin health and what you need to do to stay healthy and giving our doctors a chance to also speak to how do you get into screenings? How do you maintain a healthy lifestyle? That's where it's heading in the future is more and more ongoing engagement between the, the teams, their spokespeople, the physicians at the healthcare systems and the fans. You know, really at the end of the day, uh, all the, all these healthcare systems are, are reaching out and trying to make an impression uh, on somebody that either is a patient going to become a patient, uh, is a caregiver, who are we connecting with? I mean, there's there's obvious things that come to mind, which is like me, the sports guy. Is this a different way to reach a, a little bit of a different audience than what we've historically thought about, or am I am I kind of misinterpreting? We do a lot of data work, and we try to track uh, before we make decisions on on sponsorships and recommending them to our clients. We take a look at the numbers, and I don't think there's one team that I've seen that comes back with Nielsen or Scarborough research that reveals that there's more than a 55, 45, or 56, 43% difference between men and and women fans. I've heard people say, oh, well, we don't want to get into sports because a lot of our decision-making are women. Well, women are watching and, and participating in these sports programs almost equal to men. It's been really interesting to us to try to figure out where some of the engagement's coming from. We recently did a a program that involved uh, getting some CRM data with one of our clients. And it was interesting to me that there was a a higher level of response from women uh, to a particular campaign, but it was a sports-driven campaign. If I could tell you with certainty who's actually making all the healthcare decisions in the family, that's great. I know in our family, you know, my wife does make uh, the decisions for uh, pretty much the day-to-day, but when it's my parents or when it's a, a major decision that has to be made, you know, that's an equal uh, decision that's being made with the family and not being made, you know, just by mom. I think that moms may be driving the volume of transactions, but if you look at the the dollars involved, it probably evens out a little bit. I don't think it's a huge leap, obviously, and I think you spelled it out nicely that, you know, people like and are advocates of these organizations. Therefore, by proxy, you know, you, you could pull some trust across to your healthcare organization. And so whether it's pro sports or uh, some other local community event, a farmer's market, a 5K, a triathlon, you know, whatever it is, uh, there's probably some commonality between these, at least just from a philosophical standpoint. So for those that are listening that maybe uh, they're not doing a lot of it, or, or maybe they're wanting to start doing more of it, or, or kind of getting you know put their toe in the water and that kind of thing. Are there things that you think about? Thing here, here's a good kind of nugget or, or piece of advice for for those that are you know considering walking down this path of of kind of trying to build some community partnerships, whether it be with pro sports or otherwise. My core belief is that sports needs to come in healthcare through the strategy department, and the strategy department alongside of marketing needs to determine what the goals are of the organization. So if it's driving a service line campaigns, if it's uh, it's trying to grow the general brand in the marketplace, if it's lead generation, uh, there's so many different things that, that folks need to do that you've got to have a strategy going in. And, and then what you might find is that, you know, you think that it would be great that we got a phone call from the local NBA team. And, you know, that could be a really great way for us to engage, you know, with our programs. Well, if you take a look at the NBA, uh, they might have a completely different fan mix 
that's much more geared towards uh, the, the downtown city populations and may not be as strong out in the suburbs. And if the hospital is a downtown uh, you know, hospital and they may be looking to drive business in urgent care or pathways into their primary care facilities, that may be a great program. But if they're looking to grow their oncology department and look to looking to speak to folks that are in their 50s and 60s who are engaging in social media, you're not going to find them with the NBA. You know, you may find them with a more with baseball a little bit better, who may have a more uh, an older fan base, who may have a fan base also that is their social media profile matches the you know Facebook a little bit more than it matches Instagram. Uh, and there's a lot of things that you could do to kind of think in advance of what do you want to do before you start trying to spend money with people. It's got to be strategic, and it doesn't have to be a sports team, like you said before. Local races, local minor league teams, um, marathons. Uh, there's so many great events. Even music and entertainment are starting to become a much bigger part of the mix with healthcare. You know, there's such a great tie between wellness, health, and uh, and music and entertainment that it's another frontier that's just starting to really be explored now beyond sports. For those that uh, you know, maybe something kind of piqued their interest. They want to bend your ear about something, or they have something planned or coming up. Uh, what's the best way for them to uh, reach out to you and, and your company? We can be reached at just go to bendigoco.com. So it's B-E-N-D-I-G-O-C-O.com. Jeff, thanks a lot. Thanks, Reed. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, that was a great uh, chat. Had a lot, of, a lot of fun visiting with Jeff. It's just such an interesting space uh, and a nuanced space as you as you think about it. Before we get to recommendations, uh, just a, again a quick plug. Touchpoint.health is the website. If you'll subscribe, rate, review wherever you get your podcast, that is the number one way that other folks can find us, and uh, we would certainly appreciate that. I uh, would love for you to check out some of the other shows on the network. There's a lot of great shows and a lot of them are coming out more frequently. So, you know, it, you would be remiss not to add them to your podcast playlist. So go out to the touchpoint.health website, check out all of our shows and, uh, and let us know what you think. All right. So before we get out of here, a couple of recommendations. What do you, what do you got this week? Reed, you know what I'm going to recommend because uh, I was I told you I was going to, and you said you were going to recommend it too. So I feel bad, but I'm going to step in and recommend it first. Go ahead. Uh, I've been watching a show, a mini series show, documentary that's on of all channels, the National Geographic Channel, and it's called The Valley of the Boom, about Silicon Valley circa 1990s where it was really the start of the internet as we know it today, what they call the technology breeding ground. And it really follows in a really interesting sort of documentary slash docudrama, part musical, part comedy. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting the way they, because they, they, the, the person who did this, it just it's over the top, but it follows Netscape. It follows the globe which was one of the first social networking sites that I wasn't even aware of. I wasn't either. But anyway, it's just fascinating. And name drops all of the great little uh, websites that we used to, we used to track way back when ask Jeeves, remember ask uh, Jeeves. Yeah. yeah. Remember Lycos? Yeah. That was the circa of the time when, when Netscape was the dominant internet browser and Microsoft was gunning for them. It's a six-part miniseries. I would strongly recommend that you guys go on go online, find it. I think nationalgeographic.com actually has the shows ep- available for streaming. I actually watched the full episodes on YouTube, on their YouTube channel. They, they have them on there, or at least they've got a, the first few on there. So it's a very good, uh, very interesting uh, show. As a matter of fact, as a, as, a, as a quick note, our guest last week, Joe Stradinger, one of their primary investors, uh, is on Valley of the Boom, Jim Barksdale, so the former CEO of Netscape. So anyway, it's kind of an interesting tie there. I've got also a show on Netflix, and I'll, I'll admit I have not watched all the episodes yet. It's kind of cool. I like the format of it. It's called Seven Days Out, World's Biggest Events. And so what it is, is each episode is seven days out leading up to this big event. One episode is the Westminster Dog Show. One is the Kentucky Derby, the Chanel Fashion Show. 
uh, League of Legends, which is like a video game thing. Uh, there's a NASA related one. Anyway, there's a handful of them. I don't know how many there are exactly. And it says season one, so maybe there'll be a season two. But there looks like there is uh, one, two, three, four, there's six of them, six episodes. So it's the seven days leading up to. So I watched the one on the Kentucky Derby, and it's pretty cool. It follows some of the different horses and talks to some trainers, and even goes into like some of the fashion shops where people buy their hats, you know, and stuff like that. Anyway, it's just it's kind of a neat concept of you know we're just going to show you a few days leading up to this this monumental event that you're familiar with. Uh, I'm bookmarking it right now. All right. Well, uh, another episode in the books. Thanks for listening. Uh, We appreciate uh, Jeff coming on and uh, we've got a lot of great things planned. We'll talk more about some of the conferences uh, Chris and I will be at and be attending. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Recommend to all your friends and family. It'll be the highlight of the week. I promise. So um, (laughs) it will. (laughs) uh, Great recording. And uh, let's do it again next week. So for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith and we'll see you next time. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.